This is Business Beyond Bizarre, a podcast of the slightly unusual. Here's your host, Peter Anthony Holder. Hello and welcome to Business Beyond Bizarre, a podcast that takes you off the beaten path, introducing you to people who have slightly quirky hobbies or businesses. Think back to your pre-kindergarten days. Probably one of the biggest tasks you ever overcame, besides learning how to write your own name, was the monumental milestone of tying your own shoes. It was a rite of passage and the first step in your goal for independence, second only to learning how to ride a bicycle. Without those two talents mastered, you could never plan your escape. I'll bet you still remember that rhyme that you recited to help you learn how to tie your shoes. Bunny ears, bunny ears, playing by a tree, crisscross the tree, trying to catch me. Bunny ears, bunny ears, jumped into the hole, popped out the other side, beautiful and bold. You've probably mastered so many things since then, and I'm sure you believe that there's nothing more to learn about tying your shoes. Well, you'd be wrong. That's why we go all the way to Australia to speak to Ian Fegan, also known as Professor Shoelace. Ian wasn't looking for shoelace fame. It just happened. Yeah, it's a strange thing to aspire to, and it's certainly not something I aspired to. It simply happened because I put my Ian knot, the world's fastest shoelace knot, onto what was originally just a simple little private website that I used to experiment with. Because it sort of went viral, as we would use the terminology nowadays, back then when someone put something interesting on the internet, I started getting emails from all over the world and asking me all sorts of questions in relation to shoelaces. And I realised that there was a real lack of knowledge there. And rather than answering the same questions over and over, I started putting the answers to it on my website. And yeah, the site just sort of grew as a result. You did hear him say, Ian Knott, right? It's a way of tying your shoes that's faster than the conventional way. The Ian knot was my original attempt to make a normal shoelace knot symmetrical. So I figured because it ends up symmetrical, it must be able to be formed symmetrically. So I fiddled around a bit by tying a normal knot and then carefully untying it and seeing how it went together. And in doing so, I realised, hey, look, if you form two loops and sort of push them through each other... It creates the identical knot, and hey, guess what? It's actually faster, and within a very short time, I found that I could do it in a split second instead of, you know, one or two seconds. And so the Ian knot was born. All my life, I've been accused of being anal retentive, that I deal too much with the minutiae of things, and that's actually a moniker that I proudly wear as a badge of honour. But even I have to wonder why it's necessary to have more symmetrical shoelace knots or why you need to tie them faster. I mean, unless you're a person who screams at the microwave when you're boiling water saying, hurry up, I don't have all minute, then what's the point? Ah, but there is one, a very important one. 
there was actually a practical reason for it because I found that this actually happened one morning after I broke a shoelace. You know, from tying a shoelace over and over, over its lifetime, it gradually wears out. And I found that one end always wore out more than the other end. And the practical person in me figured, well, look, if I could make this shoelace not more symmetrical, then I would spread the wear more evenly. And in fact, that's what's happened. Besides the fact that it's symmetrical and it has less wear and tear, the fact that you are actually doing much less work to tie the shoelace, I mean, it's literally a zoop, zoop, and it's done. There's much less wear and tear on the shoelace. And I haven't had a shoelace breakage for, you know, 30 odd years. You can't argue with success. If any other person told me that they haven't broken a shoelace in 30 years, I would just assume that they switched to either loafers or Velcro decades ago. And speaking of decades, Ian's sight is about the same age as this current century. Originally it was just the one page of my Ian knot and then I put the other more common shoelace knots on there for comparison. I mean this was in the years before YouTube even existed so nowadays someone inventing something new will just stick it on YouTube and it will spread pretty quickly. But in those days you know you put your page on the internet and hope that people found it interesting and luckily a lot of people did. You get millions of people looking at your website. At what point did you realize as you said, this has gone viral, and were you surprised by it? Yeah, it surprised me almost immediately that it, it really went viral. What surprised me more was that people really encouraged me to keep going and adding other bits and pieces to it. My initial interest was more in the shoelace knots, so I started adding several different shoelace knots that I discovered. You know, I went to libraries and so forth and looked up different ways of tying shoelaces and just speaking with people and looking up things on the internet, of course, speaking with family and friends. I started adding all these shoelace knots, but I soon discovered that people were actually more interested in lacing methods than they were in shoelace knots because you know most people a shoelace knot is a traumatic thing to learn as a child and they're quite happy with the one knot that works for them but lacing methods offer enormous flexibility like to simply change the lacing method on your shoe can change its appearance or can change its functionality in quite fundamental ways a guy known as professor shoelace has got to know all the answers because he's bound to get a lot of questions so what's the most asked query for discussion? Probably until I actually added it to my website, one of the most perplexing questions that strike people is why do my shoelaces come undone? And this is invariably due to people tying a granny knot. A correctly tied shoelace knot should not come undone, but if you have the starting knot and the finishing knot in perfect harmony, then they'll keep each other tied. But if they're in discord or um, you know tied incorrectly, you'll end up with a knot that is unbalanced and will come undone. And that's called a granny knot. This is one of the most perplexing questions and over the years that's been addressed on the website i've had a granny knot page that i've gradually expanded over the years and i've added a granny knot analyzer and yeah all sorts of resources to ensure that people have all the information at their fingertips to make sure they're tying their shoelaces correctly we usually as you say learn to tie our shoes at either three four or five years old somewhere in that time frame can you teach an old dog new tricks i'm just wondering i've been tying my shoes for the same way all my life is it easy to learn a new way to tie your shoes or or is that because you know i I think we tend to tie our shoes literally by rote. We don't even realize we do them when we do them. 
Exactly. In fact, most people discover this for themselves when they start teaching a child for the first time because they realise, I don't even know how to break it down into the separate steps anymore. It's become so second nature for me. They're standing in front of the child and they go, now you do this, and they've done about three steps in one go. Take, for example, the tying of the first loop. To actually create a loop involves holding the lace in one hand, grabbing it with the other hand, then using the first hand to sort of grab the middle of the loop, folding it down so that you've got the loop folded back on itself. And then with the first hand, you sort of let go of the end and grab it in the middle. You know, there's all these separate hand movements just to create a loop. And a child has to actually do this for the first time. And they're going, oh, what do I do? <laughs> so, um, yes, we, we do do things by rote. And learning a new knot can be just as traumatic as it was the first time around. Admit it. You were just looking at your shoes, weren't you? Through the years, Ian has received worldwide recognition and media attention for his site. Various different places like the New York Times and the Washington Post, various prominent papers and so forth have interviewed me over the years to just get a handle on why on earth someone would start a website about shoelaces. Probably because shoelaces have been perceived through the years as one of the most lowly of items. Even in the Bible, there's references to a shoelace as being the most lowly item and that, you know, someone's not worthy to even tie your shoelaces. It has always seemed strange to people that anyone would go to the effort of creating a website that contains all this information. But that's really the joy of the world, isn't it? That there's people for every single niche in the world. There's someone there to fill that niche. Yes, there is, Ian. Yes, there is. And Ian, you just keep putting your best foot forward. If you're looking to find Ian's site, just Google Professor Shoelace. It'll be the first thing that pops up. Business Beyond Bizarre. Here is one of those you-got-your-peanut-butter-in-my-chocolate situations. There are times when, initially, you bring two things together and they just don't seem to fit right. Take the game of chess. It's one of the oldest and most popular games in the world. Been around forever, without nary a change or update. But when you add the word diving to it, well, that takes you to new depths. Eitan Ilfeld is the inventor of chess diving. That's you, a chessboard, and your opponent at the bottom of a pool. It's a thing, and there are even world championships. Eitan explains the rules from London, England. So basically, you're playing chess in a swimming pool. The board is submerged, so it's at the bottom of the pool. And instead of using a chess clock, serious chess players always use a chess clock. Otherwise, if you're in a bad position, you would just basically not move until your opponent gets frustrated. So you have to have some sort of mechanism to, to keep the pace going. And the mechanism here is very simple. Instead of a chess clock, it's your breath. So basically, you can think for as long as you hold your breath for each move. So you go down, you have to make a move before you come back up above water. And then your opponent, he or she, has to dive back down. And they have to make a move before they reemerge. And so on and so on. As soon as they come up, you go down, you have to make a move. And it just goes on until someone wins. It's normal chess. You're still playing chess, but you're basically using your breath and it's uh, it's quite physically uh, challenging. Do you have to use any kind of special board? I would assume the pieces had to be a little bit weighted down so they don't kind of float away. Oh yeah. So over the years I've improved the the customized boards that we use where the pieces are weighted and we've got very strong magnets on the pieces. So there's there's no way that the piece will I don't know fall over because someone's uh, kicking around and splashing in the pool. I mean, these, these pieces are very, very sturdy. It's one thing to create a new and daring game. It's another thing entirely to get others to literally take the plunge with you. So what was recruiting players like? 
And how did this new endeavor come to be? I've always loved playing chess. It's a great game, and, and there's so many great tempos to play, different variations as well. It's an amazing game. And I'm, I'm a USCF chess master. Back in 2008, I went to this board game tournament called the Mind Sports Olympiad, where you compete in lots of different games. I went there to play chess, but they had people competing in Scrabble and lots of other new cool games. What was interesting was I found out about all these different games, and I, I basically wanted to learn and try different things. So I came back the following year, played again, and I tried lots of other games. And then there's this really bizarre tournament called the Creative Thinking World Championship. And it was in that competition that I came up with the idea of diving chess, where I thought, wow, how could I combine two things and make chess more challenging? Also, going back to chess, you know, everybody agrees that it's an extremely cerebral thing. There's no, there's no doubt about that. So some people say that maybe it's a bit of a science, but also it's a bit of an art as well. There's a lot of creativity and beauty in the game as well. Chess has a lot of depth. Hold on. Did he just say that chess has a lot of depth? Oh, that's just too easy. Let's move on. Is chess really a game? or a sport. Some people have tried to make the argument that perhaps chess is a sport. And this can be quite controversial. Obviously, being in good shape will mean that you, you'll probably do better in a, in a multi-day tournament. If you play in a chess tournament, you're, you get used to playing very long games. So you might be playing two games a day, five hours each. You might be 10 hours of playing. So being in good shape is important. There's no doubt about that. But is it a sport? I don't know. I'm not sure the chess itself, regular tournament chess is a sport. But I thought, what can I do to create a version of it that definitely is a sport? How can I make it physically demanding and play with the idea of time? That's basically how I came up with diving chess. And, and I started off as a volunteer after falling in love with this idea of, of the Mind Sports Olympiad, where you, you play lots of games. I volunteered to organize uh, some of the future tournaments. And, and since then, I've, I've been running the annual Mind Sports Olympiad. Like I said, it's, it's this amazing board game tournament and festival in London. And by running it, I also had a platform to introduce diving chess to a lot of crazy game players, basically, who are open to trying something new. And so the first Diving Chess World Championship, I think, was in 2013, something like that. And people just thought it was a lot of fun. It's really built up since. And it's, it's very quirky. I mean, it's not that interesting to watch people play chess. But when you see people playing chess in a swimming pool, that's actually visually stimulating. Chess diving is not the greatest of spectator sports. I mean, the best part of it takes place at the bottom of a pool. But Eitan took some GoPro footage of his fledgling sport, and that's how it became, well, a bigger splash. I took some GoPro cameras and got some cool videos, and people were just extremely <laughs> entertained by these videos. They started contacting me, and it already had a good amount of press over the last few years in, in a lot of places. Sometimes we, we, I'm even surprised to hear where people have seen it. And I've had people reach out to me also asking to buy custom-made diving chess boards. There's also been a lot in terms of the competition. I mean, it's gotten stronger and stronger over the years. We, we keep having newcomers, but also if you see some of our videos, you'll notice that it's actually not that easy to dive to the bottom of the swing pool and stay down. You usually need to, to exhale in order to sink. So people work on different types of techniques to be able to do that. At the end of the day, how big can a sport like this get? Well, I mean, at the end of the day, I just want people to have fun, right? How big can it get? Anything's possible. I mean, there are a lot of swimming pools in the world and a lot of people who like chess. So I guess the sky's the limit. It's not something that, I, that I'm working too actively to promote. You know, I just really enjoy running the world championship every year. And, and if people want to know more about it and reach out to me, I'm happy to try and help out. Oh, Aitan, surely you must have bigger dreams than that. Don't you perhaps envision a day where people will say... Chess on terra firma? That's so passe. Oh, that would be very entertaining. I, first of all, I don't think 
will ever be completely true because obviously there's different types of chess and I love traditional chess as well. But, uh, but sure, of course, it'd be, it would be entertaining. And, you know, if it ever became an Olympic sport one day, that would boggle my mind for sure. Uh, that would be amazing. Faster, higher, stronger. That's the Olympic motto. If you're willing to dip your toes into the chess pool, visit their website at divingchess.com. I hear the competition is going along just swimmingly. Next time on Business Beyond Bazaar. The other Danish guy is the name of a brand of underwear based in Finland. It's eco-friendly undergarments created from fabric that is made of discarded fishing nets. It's for the environment, so they're not just doing it for the halibut. And you'll meet a woman in Maine who has a very tiny museum. The only thing on display, umbrella covers. Perhaps it's a place you should save for a visit on a rainy day. This has been Business Beyond Bazaar, a presentation of Flying Fish Communications and Group Fair Play.